Running Light Ministry Podcast is brought to you by listeners like you. You can support these podcasts by making a gift to the ministries at runninglight.org. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this edition of the Better Pleasure Podcast. My name is Bo. I'm Peter. And we hopefully sound a lot better today. Oh, yeah. We're in the actual <laughs> podcast studio right now, and we have visual for the first time. Really? Yeah. Can... I don't know if anyone will see it, <laughs> but it's being recorded as we're speaking. <laughs> well, maybe I'll just need to post it where people can see it too, you know, but we're going to do um, a really kind of relevant podcast that's hit our town um, and uh, and also the nation, I would say, at large. And uh, the way we're going to do this is we're going to kind of read an article and um kind of talk about it because that's sometimes the way we like to kind of go about things instead of just talking about it from our angle let's kind of read something from a different side a different angle and then maybe chat about it so this is going to be we're going to talk about um drag queens in the bible not in the bible but and the bible (laughs) (laughs) well you know you know we're talking before there are drag queens in the bible (laughs) (laughs) so we will we will kind of touch base on this topic. I'm going to read from the Baptist News Global. And so that's where I'm actually reading from. And this is an article published by Suzanne Shaw. And uh, let me just read her credentials there. It says uh, she is senior columnist for the Baptist News Global. Nice. And yeah. And she wrote a really good article. It's, uh, It's written well anyway, I think, September 14th, 2022. So fairly recent article about this. Um, the reason why it's something that we probably should talk about is it is, as I mentioned, come to our town. Um, this is something that is happening in our town really soon. Mm-hmm. And on Sunday in the morning before services even started, there was a gentleman that came right up to me and said, have you heard, you know, what's happening at this place and this is what they're doing and this is what they've allowed and blah, 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 blah. And, and, um, and he was just fiery, man. He was just, Ooh, you know, he was angry. Hmm. And, and I tried to kind of talk him off the mountain, you know, and just say, <laughs> you know, <laughs> cause he was ready to charge downhill, yeah. you know, with his sword and staff. <laughs> And uh, take on the enemy, yeah. so to speak. And um, and I just reminded him, you know, of, hey, how we got saved. And, you know, me and him both come from pretty interesting backgrounds. And I knew his background a little bit. And, mm. and you know, maybe just start praying, you know, for people and um, that kind of thing. And I, you know, didn't squash his, his passion because I think it was focused on the right object, meaning he was focused on the children and, that really bothered him, you know, of what goes on with children today. And that would be like a distinction uh, and why this is coming to prominence, because I remember even as a kid, the concept of drag queens was pretty well known. Um, the idea that there were drag queens around and that they had drag shows, that was pretty well known and understood. Mm. Uh, I think what people are worried about today is not the existence of drag shows, but the the number one, the proliferation of it, that is becoming more and more mainstream and popular. 
And secondly, the exposure to children. I think that's really what's piqued people up. So there are many things in society, and me and Bo talk about this a lot, where it's it's like necessary evils. So there have been Christians throughout the ages, like guys like St. Augustine or Thomas Aquinas, that took an institution like prostitution, for instance. And while they condemned it, they said, obviously, this is a bad thing. But is it right for a Christian to legislate that away, to make it illegal? Uh, or is it a necessary evil that society has to put up with? Because this is what the hearts of men desire. And someone who is not professing to be a Christian, is it, is it feasible or is it tenable for someone who doesn't know God, doesn't know Christ, to discipline themselves into this level of sexual morality? And some Christians said yes, and some Christians said no. Some Christians would basically say, no, it's not reasonable for me to expect uh, a normal average person who doesn't know Jesus is Lord to discipline their sexual morality, to be monogamous to one woman, and to not partake in sex work. That So again, they're not uh, making it a moral statement, but they're making it a political one. Should we legislate this particular aspect of our morality? But one thing that they were always kind of harping on is exposure to children. And so me and Bo have talked about this a lot of, because there are some Christians who are saying like, we should just outlaw pornography. We should just get rid of it. And while me and Bo have never said that pornography is a good, you know, we never said like, it's a super positive thing and we should allow it because of all it does for our country. But we've said, perhaps it's a necessary evil. Perhaps it's something that we can regulate. Perhaps it's something that we can have stipulations upon but maybe it's not a feasible thing to make it illegal. Yeah, to, to politically legislate and then be able to um, um, enforce right. laws against such a thing. Because what would that, if, if we gave an institution the ability to legislate internet access, like what kind of content someone can curate, produce, and post, what kind of power would they have and what would that mean if they were to aim that against us right that's the fear so it's not that we're saying it's a good but we're saying perhaps the cure might be a little worse than the disease and if you go back in our podcast <clears throat> i don't want to say that we've been pretty prophetic but i would say we've been pretty rock on uh, we've been solid uh, we've been on target meaning the, we, the fancy word is prescient yeah <laughs> we have made it i think pretty clear that that the the flip side of the Christian's move to ban things like pornography is going to result in a First Amendment issue. Right. Uh, and, it's, and it's one that was seen all throughout uh, United States um, um, court cases hmm. over the last 60 or so years. Um, but it would be there would be in the wrong hands, meaning if we take the First Amendment, we put it into the wrong hands, then we're going to see a lot of banning of different things right. that us Christians might not like that it's being banned. Right. And sure enough, what are we having today? Hmm. A lot of things that have been banned. Hmm. Um, you know, what's been deemed misinformation by the hegemonic structure. Right. And this, no doubt, is something that we saw. Yeah. Uh, early uh, a while back years right. ago that you know you just put this kind of power into the wrong hands yeah and man yeah they'll ban stuff right but then now they might ban something you like exactly and that's that's one of the principles of 
the First Amendment in the United States is it's not that you're going to like all speech, but it's that if you give an institution the ability to regulate speech, you might be limiting the capacity of people to have freedom. Yeah. Um, now, in one regulation that we've always supported, though, and we've talked about a lot openly on the show, is we don't like the accessibility of porn, mm -hmm. especially to minors. Yeah, that's why we talk about regulation. That's right. And so when it comes to this issue, we're in a similar quandary of are we proposing a ban on drag queen performances? And I think speaking personally, I would say, no, I'm not for that kind of a ban. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't believe that that would be a good thing to do, to push for. And I could give several reasons. But do I think it's a good idea to create some sort of legislation that would ban a parent from bringing their child to it? Now, that's where we get into really sticky areas. Uh, because again, you would say if you put a ban like that from the government, then you're also giving the government some sort of a leeway in telling you how to parent and how much power are you willing to give the government? Cause the government already has some leeway there. For instance, if I were to try to take my daughter to get a, a tattoo, even if both me and my wife sign off on it, on it, that's still considered child abuse and we could get fined or possibly put in jail for doing that. Which sounds um, so weird. Which sounds weird. Yeah. So my daughter's two. So if I were like, hey, she really likes Ariel, you know, as a princess. So I'm going to buy a tattoo gun and I'm just going <laughs> to, I'm going to slap an Ariel tattoo on her thigh and she'll love it, man. She'll think it's the greatest thing ever. Put Ariel on her neck. <laughs> yeah. On her neck with the fin going up on her cheek. And she would think it's the coolest thing ever. But people would rightly tell me that that's not good parenting and I could have some legal consequences for that. Yeah, we've tried to have a, a hands-off policy when it comes to children. Now, even, even uh, in the 1970s with the uh, commission that was put together by the government of that day um, that Ray Rist headed up, um, and he wrote a book called The Pornography Controversy, which is really good. It's all the articles from the actual um, group that was put together by mm -hmm. the government. And it's super neat to read the different articles. But the big takeaway was, you know what? We don't know really the effects of pornography on people. We really can't quantify it as a cause and effect mm -hmm. relationship. Um, but we, and we certainly don't know even the effects on children yeah. of it, but we don't feel good about <laughs> just opening it up to children. Right. And so that commission in their report uh, advised the government in the early 70s mm. to cut off access to pornography, uh, whether it was shown in theaters like where I grew up in San Fernando Valley um, or um, to purchase a magazine right. in a store. You had to be under the age of 18. Right. And that that the government has really taken that um, and has continued on that kind of theme right. when it comes with pornography, even through the 90s and the different court cases and everything like that. But the point is, is that there's been kind of a hands-off with children. Right. Like, you know, we really don't know everything, so let's just, like, not dink around too much with right. children. Right. You know, let's try to keep it more as, as in a sense, neutral maybe, um, as possible, the mm. child, you know, and then as they get older, of course, you know, as they grow into adulthood, they can make decisions, right? you know, of what they want to watch or what they want to do.
And that kind of throws into this interesting thing. I was telling Bo, I was, I was reading this. So on A Reason for Hope, the other show that I do, me and Sean are going through some of the various thinkers that have led to our current cultural moment. And a guy I'm reading right now is Sigmund Freud. And he wrote three essays on sexuality that mm-hmm. is really disturbing. It's very disturbing. So this is in the 1800s that he's writing this. And in, I mean, I'm sorry, early, early 1900s, but in the essays, he makes the argument that kids are sexual from birth. So he says that even the act of breastfeeding is a sexual act. And he says that when a child is breastfeeding, they are getting sexual pleasure from it. And then when they start to suck their thumb, that's actually, he calls it in his essays, a masturbatic tendency. So he's saying that the child is essentially engaging in self-gratification through sucking on their thumb. They're seeing it as a, as a sensual thing. Now, people would push back on Freud and be like, well, I don't remember doing stuff like Because then he said that there would be sexual play between kids. And some people would be like, well, I don't remember doing that. And he'd be like, yeah, but you don't remember a lot of stuff from when you were a kid. You probably just repressed it. So you, you did it. You just don't remember. And so his idea was that kids are actually highly sexual when they're born. And then they're repressed by society and cultural norms. That has now bled into our current cultural moment where even in the 70s, they were thinking, okay, well, kids' sexuality is not developed yet. We shouldn't be messing with it. But in our current cultural moment, people are saying, wait, kids are sexual from birth. So that means that they're understanding and experiencing things. So what's wrong with exposing children to different sexual methods, right? Kink, S&M, or even drag shows, right? So Christians and conservatives think that they have a winning argument by saying, well, you, wouldn't, you shouldn't be exposing kids to sexual content at this age. They think they have a, a winning argument from that, not realizing that the culture's kind of moved to the yeah. point where people are like, well, why not? Right? I, I don't think we're at the cultural moment yet where parents would be arguing that we should be exposing kids to like hardcore porn. But I think that they are at the place where they would say, well, we should be exposing them to some sexual content so that they could discover what sexuality and sexual preferences they want as they develop their own ideas of sexuality. And and this is the uh, dialogue that goes on on Facebook when it comes to this certain place, I won't mention its name, but (laughs) this this, uh, business that's going to have the drag queens uh, come and do their thing. Um, The dialogue is about this topic of diversity, Mm -hmm. where you hear some people say, how could you know, you do this kind of thing. You guys should be ashamed of yourself. No God-fearing individual would ever do this kind of, you know, you read that kind of comment. Yeah. And then there's moms on there that are just like, man, I'm so glad this is going on. You know, it's great for diversity. Right. You know, so you could see where Freud's ideas Hmm. took a while to gain some some traction. Right. And, uh, you know, and it always takes a, a good generation or two for something to really start latching on. Yeah. And um and now you start seeing more of that idea. It's under the hospice of diversity. Right. You know of that term. Uh but what th- what that mom means by that is that hey, my child can go and be exposed to something that is not you know gender normative. Right. Or you know sex normative. Right. And and then it kind of opens up their mind to this other way. And this is another thing that you and I talk about often that a lot of people don't understand. And there's a 
there's a uh, definitely two sides that I believe are false on this topic. So then there's the side that believes that anything you're exposed to, you will become. So this is the this is your brain on porn. You know, you watch this type of porn, you're going to end up watching this type of right. porn. It's guaranteed. You know, you start out with heterosexual porn, but then you get exposed to homosexual porn, and then you get exposed to S&M, and then you get exposed to child porn. So this is you're going to go this direction no matter what. And me and Bo talk often about that's just not it's not my story, it's not your story, it's not the story of a lot of the men that we talk to and women. But then on the other side, there's well no no, no you have a fixed sexual preference. And no matter what you're exposed to, it's not going to change that. That's also wrong. So there's infinite flexibility. Whatever you're exposed to, you end up becoming. And then there's no flexibility. You have a fixed sexual preference that no amount of exposure will change. And then there's kind of a middle ground that we all have preferences, but those preferences can be influenced based on what we're exposed to. Yeah, and 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 it, it becomes uh, anecdotal, meaning we all have our stories. Right. You know, and, and this should prove that both of those sides are wrong, right? Um, for sure. Um, you know, my side was—I'm um, from the side where I was exposed to pretty much anything. Right. You know, I had gay babysitters growing up. I knew—I uh, knew there were two men that were together. Mm-hmm. Um, we, my parents, had a lot of parties at my house and it was back in the you know the day those days of the 70s and um so there was a lot of nudity Mm. um i was exposed to um all kind growing up in southern california in the la area and and walking on sunset boulevard and being involved in uh club culture uh drag queens were super normative i mean it wasn't odd to see a man dressed up as a woman right that wasn't a shock when i was a teenager um and so um you know i you know you know you would think like well everything's there for me right um but i didn't go in everything's direction right there was a certain way that i went Hmm. um and different choices that i made ultimately my choices had not to do with my the value of pleasure that I could get from someone. That's not what my ultimate choice was dependent on. That makes sense. Yeah. It was based more on uh, you know my conversion to Christianity and what God says, right. and 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 how to um, submit my life to God's ways, right, and and that isn't easy and it hasn't been easy right. in my life. Um, and it's still not easy in my life. I right. still have to think about it all the time. Right. Um, but this is, um, this is a decision that I made. Right. Um, and so, you know, I had a lot of flexibility, but obviously I made decisions. Right. Um, um, but everybody's got a story. You know, some people have been raised in a very, quote, cisgendered, you know, monogamous, you know, world their whole life where they didn't, they didn't ever hung out with gay people or they never hung out with any trans people or uh, drag queens or anything. Mm. And, and then lo and behold, they get older and boom, it does it. Something happens and they switch. So 
you know, again, a lot of people who are fighting this like really vehemently. So we'll, we'll talk about again, the two categories, the people who are fighting against it, their view is if kids are exposed to it, yeah. this is their future. Mm -hmm. And then on the other side, you have people saying kids need to be exposed to it because maybe this is a part of their nature. So again, in their view, kids have a very fixed sexual preference, but they need to discover that through exposure. But they don't think that the exposure is actually going to change their child. It'll just free them up to explore what they already like. That's the, uh, the, the more liberal side. Yeah. What we're suggesting is that human beings are kind of in the middle. We have a nature that we inherit from God that desires the good, but then we have a nature that we inherit from the fallen nature of Adam that desires to rebel against God. But within that, there's a lot of flexibilities. There's innate preferences that we all have that are influenced by the things that we're exposed to, but it's not infinitely changeable or malleable. So in other words, as Bo said, there are people who will be exposed to bad stuff that will still choose the good stuff, even if they don't become Christians. Some people will grow up in like really dysfunctional homes with all sorts of crazy stuff going on, and they'll still choose to have a monogamous life sexually. And they won't even see that as a religious decision. They'll just see it as, this is what I want to do. You know, I'm attracted, I'm a man, I'm attracted to women, so I'm going to do. And on the flip side, there are people who are exposed to all the right examples, and they still choose the other way. So it is... Um, it is something that we need to approach with a little bit of flexibility in our own perspective. Just because a child is exposed to something doesn't necessitate that they'll go in that direction. However, preferences are influenced by exposure. That's why we do think it's important when you're raising your kids not to expose them to everything under the sun. Yeah, and obviously if someone argues that, hey, you know, gosh, you shouldn't, you know, why, don't, why what's the big deal with allowing drag queens to come and read or things like that? We have to ask, is there anything wrong with anyone reading to children hmm. meaning is there is there a, a, anything that we can look at and go that's wrong right you know because if you do say well yeah there is something that i think is wrong well then you're just you're doing <clears throat> what every what the conservative person's doing yeah. you know so if you're and i was raised super liberal super liberal so and and believe me my brain still goes there a lot where you go Oh yeah, like what's wrong with it? You know, those those conservatives, they're so strict. They're so well, you know, to me in my liberal mindset, there's things that would be wrong. Right. And so So like flip it, what if it was like KKK story hour? Right. You know, right. You what if it's have, KKK yeah. story hour? And you have a dude with a hood, right. but he's just reading Hansel and Gretel. Yeah. You know? He's like, not doing anything. He's not talking about his white supremacy. Yeah. Do people want Donald Trump to go into a <laughs> kid's area and read to kids? I bet you there's books. a lot of the population that would feel very uncomfortable with that. They would say no. They would say, you know, I don't think that's a good idea. Right. You know, um, I don't like that kind of exposure to kids to this man. Right. You know, for this reason. Right. You know, whatever. You know, even when we just look at sexuality, there's issues that we probably could all agree on. Hmm. You know, do, do, will we let, will we say, is it okay for Warren Je Jeffs, you know, to read to children? <laughs> <laughs> Which he would love. <laughs> By the way, those of you guys who don't know, he's the head of the FLDS who's in prison right now, who had like, what, like, 40 child brides. 56. 56, 56 yeah. wives. 56 wives, and some of them were children, <laughs> like uh, young young girls. So uh, that's that's what we're talking about. Is, is someone like that? Brigham Young had 55 right. so wives. Warren Jeffs 
had to one up him. <laughs> he one up him, all right. One-up him. <laughs> he one up him. <laughs> That's true. It's like in your face, <laughs> Brigham Young. Yeah. Yeah. So, but. so there are people that we would probably all go, "Hey, no, that's probably not a good idea." Right. And and why? Maybe we wouldn't want children exposed right. to a gentleman who is a known pedophilia right. guy. You right. know, a pedophile. Right. And this is, Um, you know, this is another thing that parents have a lot of power and influence on their kids. Uh, Just this. So we're potty training beer right now. My youngest daughter is like two. And so I I brought her into the bathroom at a Home Depot the other day. And uh, she goes and she actually peed on the big potty and I was all proud of her. And then I brought her to the sink and she washed her hands. And then I hit the hand dryer and she just started freaking out because I, I didn't click in my head that I've never had a hair it's dryer. So and she's like, oh, it's so loud. And I'm like, no, it's fun. And I put my hands under it and I showed her and she immediately was like, oh, and she started laughing and put her hands under it. As a parent, you have power to show your kid what is safe and acceptable and what's unacceptable. So if I would have hit that and she started going like freaking out and screaming and I started doing the same thing, that would have reinforced that terror in her life and she would have perpetuated an anxiety at loud noises like that. But because I acted calm around it, she assumed this is okay, this is safe. Mm. And this happens all the time inside of her life. I'll introduce her to new things, whether it's people or places, and she'll sometimes she'll meet them with anxiety, but sometimes she'll meet them with too much confidence. Like she'll just walk up to an edge and try to jump off. And so sometimes I'm trying to give her a little bit of caution. Sometimes I'm trying to give her a little bit of feeling of safety, like, hey, this may not feel safe, but it is. Right. That's a power that a parent has. If I'm bringing a child in and I'm having someone read them stories, what I'm communicating to them is this is safe. This is the this is a not only a safe person, but this is a normal thing. Right. What you're seeing right now, you shouldn't have a reaction to it. You shouldn't see this as strange or odd or anything like that. And so it does have a shaping influence on the child. Right. That this is okay. this is normal. So even if some people are saying, well, you're grooming the child. Well, no, that's not necessarily true. It doesn't, number one, it doesn't necessitate that the drag queen actually has an interest in the kids sexually. But number two, it doesn't necessitate that your kid will become a drag queen. But what it is intended to do is to groom them into a particular ideology, right? Where the intent is as they become more safe with this type of behavior, they feel more comfortable around it. And therefore, as they grow up, they become more supportive of it. That's the idea that, okay, I grew up with this type of behavior. Now I'm an adult and now I see people who see this behavior as bad and now I'm against them. Why? Because I, I see that behavior is safe. I see it as normal. I see it as common. Um, even I was reading an article today. I thought it was hilarious. You might think it's kind of funny too, where uh, some news people went out to San Fran, you know, where your brother's... <laughs> hanging out and like right when they went there they, they were doing like a a video on crime in the area the bay area <laughs> and they immediately their van gets busted into and all their stuff is taken and they're just like gosh man we just came out here to do a short little video someone steals our stuff this is crazy and someone blasts them on on twitter like the da the guy who's running for the da of san francisco is like man you guys are just small town yuppies you know we know what to do you don't leave equipment like that in your car i've had my car broken into like 15 times you just kind of get used to it and when you're reading it you know you, <laughs> you take a step back you're like wait 
why are you defending the normalcy of crime? You know, it's like, yeah, I live in Tucson. I've lived in Tucson my whole life. I know the areas of town that you don't leave your car overnight, that you don't leave out valuables. But I don't think that that's a good thing. And if someone was complaining about being mugged on 6th Street, I wouldn't be like, bro, you know, you just you shouldn't have parked there. You know, well, it's the same kind of deal. You could become you can normalize even violent or horrible behavior to the point where it doesn't affect you anymore. Yeah. You know, so you growing up in the area that you grew up in L.A., you just understand there are certain things you do and there are certain things you don't do. It doesn't make it good behavior, but if you grow up with it as a kid, you see it as normal behavior. You don't see anything wrong with it. You just see it as, yeah, this is the way it is. Yeah, and I mean, those are some really good points because it seems to kind of bring up this idea of almost like life context, Mm. you know, like a life context where, you know, it seems like in our society, you know, we don't just we don't just accept everything in every context. Right. You know, we've allowed many different behaviors, but in different situations, different areas, different contexts. Right. Um, And, and, and that shouldn't be weird. Mm. I think to people that should people, we should all understand that. Like when you go to a bar, you know, we've allowed for people to drink, and get drunk right. at bars. Right. That's the place to do it. Right. We've agreed, like, as, as a society, a society. <laughs> yeah, that this, that's, is, where this is where you do it. Yeah. You know, this is kind of how it rolls. Yeah. You know, and it's not every place, you know, but if you went to a, like, the place where the drag queens are going to read to the kids and you opened up a bar. Right. And you allowed drinking. Yeah, you started doing flaming tequila shots. <laughs> yeah, we would think that that's wrong. <laughs> In <a> Barnes and Nobles. <laughs> that's right, yeah. because we the context is not the right context. Why? Because there's children involved. Mm. And we don't want children to be exposed to people that are drunk. Right. And that's why drunk parents aren't usually looked at as being good parents. Right. Um, because in the parental structure of things, certain things have been deemed um, good in that context of family and, and then other things, not so, Mm. um, you know, drag Queens obviously is a form of entertainment, right? And it is something that has been regulated. I would say mostly in our society to places of entertainment, right? So places where you could go or certain clubs, things of that nature, um, shows, Um, and, uh, you know, I, I don't think this has been so much in the dark over the last 50 years, but has been pretty fairly out in the open. And I mean, it's a, it's a type of like, well, it's, it's like a mixture almost between like comedy and music. It's like a burlesque show Mm -hmm. and people know that that's what goes on there that, you know, I think it really got proliferated on the Vegas strip, but then it started to go to a lot of bigger cities where this type of show became more and more tolerated and and allowed. Um, But ultimately, yeah, that was the agreed upon context. It's in the same vein as like a burlesque show, you know? So they, they also have shows like that where women dress in particular outfits, glittery, glittery and scanty, and they put on dance numbers and performances. And it's not a strip show, 
but it's just a type of show. Yeah, and it's got to be interesting with all the different groups, uh, the different kinds of feminist groups um, out there of just how to quite go about reading yeah. the, the drag queen because it has the word queen in it, right? which obviously moves us to this idea of femininity. Right. And usually when you go to a drag queen show or you, you see someone with a lot of makeup, yeah. a lot of uh, motifs, right. if you will, a lot right. of embellishments. Right. Everything tends to be very caricature-ish. Right. Um, that's why a lot of people have called them woman face, right? So mm -hmm. some women are very offended. Some feminists are very offended by the drag queen shows because they would say, well, it, it would be similar to me and you putting on like black makeup <laughs> going out and doing like jazz routines and being generically stereotypically black. Mm -hmm. People would see that as offensive because that would be the joke. The joke is we're being stereotypically a race that we're not and we're showing the the strangeness of that culture mm -hmm. through our caricature. That's essentially what the drag show is. It's taking femininity and it's being put on by men, right? People who are not women. And they're taking like a caricature of women, womanhood, and they're presenting it. And it's almost like a joke, right? You go to these shows and they're not serious. They are, they're supposed to be funny. They're almost satirical in the way that they are, but they are also highly sexual, right? So it's a, it's a very interesting dynamic for sure. But Christians and conservatives, people who have moral qualms with the show, are not the only ones that are offended by it. Right. Different groups would be. I was kind of thinking too of, you know, the, you know, some people might say, well, hey, you know, my kid watches TV, mm. you know, my little kid watches TV and cartoons, you know, and they, they're not much different than a drag queen looks, you know, they're very embellished mm. and very, you know, uh, over the top, if you will, um, in the way that they're designed. Um, you know, you know, hey, I, my kid watches Teletubbies and yeah. look at Teletubbies. I mean, look at that thing. What Even, is it? Yeah, I, I mentioned earlier yeah. that my daughter likes Little Mermaid. Right. And the villain, Ursula, she was actually modeled after a drag queen. Yeah. Which I think is interesting. Yeah, and, I can see that. Yep. And her and you look at her features and once you know that, you're like, oh, that's super obvious. She's got like the the really short haircut, but her body is like very voluptuous, if you want to put it that way. Right. Mm -hmm. And she definitely has scenes in the movie that are a little bit, you could call it like sensual. She has like sensual scenes where she's moving in, in various ways. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. And when that movie came out, there were a lot of parents that were disturbed by that. They would say, is this, is this right to expose my kid right. to this to type this, of behavior? To this type of thing, to the Disney thing. And so I'm sure a lot of parents see it that way. Uh, another, another thing I want to get into, um, if we just kind of turn the page a little bit is the idea of uh, sometimes uh, a conservative will argue, well, you know what? It's just the, the land, you know, everybody doing what is right in their own <clears throat> eye <clears throat> as the book of judges talks about. Uh, and, and it's always in a negative in the book of judges, right? Everybody's doing what they want in their own eye. They're doing what they want to do, blah, blah, blah. And it's always really a move away from God kind of thing. Um, <clears throat> but, um, I, I'd love to get your thoughts on this too, but um, you know what? What about the argument of like that we've brought up just in passing at the beginning of like, hey, well, you know, the a lot of these people don't claim to be born again, right? 
Um, and they're bringing their children to a place to go see something they think is diversified, you yeah. know, that's what they're saying, yeah. right? It's uh, diversity. Um, and, you know, the Christian church has multiple issues. Um, why can't the church just focus on getting their stuff together like with themselves? So this is where I'm going to make a very different argument than what most people would. So my argument is not necessarily about ethics and politics. My argument would be more from the perspective of nationality. So to put it another way, it's like what unifies Americans? When right? mm -hmm. we say I'm an American, like what do we mean? Well, most places you say I'm a Canadian, right? If someone's a Canadian, we have a pretty good idea of their ethnic background, things like that, the language that they speak. In America, saying you're American says nothing about your ethnicity. It says nothing about even where you're from, right? Being an American, you could be literally from anywhere. You could be first generation, second, third, fourth generation. I'm second generation. My mom's from Korea. My dad is, I don't know, probably he's been here since the Mayflower or whatever. You know, he's super white. But, you know, we, we have this diversity within our family. So it's not ethnicity that's joining us. Is it religion? Is there a creed that joins us? And the answer is, well, not really that either because we're not a we we were founded on christian principles but it was never expected that people would become christians in order to become citizens of america now that may sound to people growing up today you'd be like well of course they wouldn't well that's not as as uh, obvious as you might think historically the majority of times historically nations would require you to have some sort of a fealty to a religious system right that's why the christians got in trouble in ancient rome is because they did require you to have some sort of a, they're like, hey, you believe in your God, whatever, but you do got to give fealty to Caesar. You do got to serve him as if he's God. And the Christians refuse to do that. So the modern day conception that there is no creed, there is no uh, religious creed that unifies the country that people at least have to give obeisance to, that's new, right? That's something that even our founders didn't expect people to do. That's why it's one nation under God. That's why uh, God language is is put throughout the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, as well as the Bill of Rights. So when you when you look at our country today, if we're not unified by ethnicity, we're not unified by any type of religious creed, well, what does unify us? We'd be like, well, the founding principles. Well, there's a lot of people today, including people in high levels of government that don't like the founding principles, that are trying to destroy them. So that's not what's unifying us. So the answer is geography. That's literally it. It's we share a landmass towards one another. The problem is, is that the more we start moving to this idea of you could just believe whatever you want, you're moving into a culture that has no unifying principle whatsoever other than landmass. We share a landmass. And that's not a durable structure. And that's what actually the book of Judges shows us. That Israel just having a landmass and saying, well, we're Israelites. <laughs> or even having an ethnicity wasn't enough to unify them. And the whole point of the book is you get to the end of it and they have a civil war with one of the tribes because the ethics and morality of that tribe became so different than the others that they couldn't coexist anymore and they had to fight one another, right? So a country can't last. You know, forget about what's right versus what's wrong for a second here. A country cannot last 
if their principles and ethics are too different. There's no way. You know, could we really share a country with a bunch of people who believed in, let's say, Sharia law? What if there were states in our union who decided to institute Sharia law? And they had massively different ideals of what women should wear and how many wives a man could have, right? Would that be a sustainable union? And the answer is no. So if you're going to move to a position in America where it's kind of like, well, everyone could do what they want. That's okay. We don't have any religious ideas. We don't have anything that we're adhering to in a cultural sense or an ethical sense. It's just kind of whatever goes, goes. If that's your ideal, you don't have enough to unify a country. And that's why people are talking about the possibility of civil war. Some people look at it and be like, well, it's not like the issue is slavery. It doesn't have to be the issue of slavery. There just has to be enough ethical difference between me and somebody else to say, what exactly are we sharing? When we say we're Americans, what are we sharing? What unifies us as citizens? And there doesn't really seem to be a whole lot anymore <laughs> that unifies us together as a country. That's more my concern when it comes to this issue is what exactly is going to be left of the union that we have if we keep pushing towards moral relativism, say. So even if you do have a large number of people who say like, hey, you, you guys, you Christians, you live how you want, we're going to live how we want. The difference between me and a secular progressive today is vastly wider than the difference between me and let's say a Cuban immigrant who has nothing, who has no idea about our national norms. And now again, I'm not saying that the Cuban immigrant is more right than the secular progressive. I'm just saying I have more in common with that guy mm. than with a secular progressive. Mm. That's problematic when it comes to what values are we voting on as a society and what kind of politics can be implemented to guide our morality. That It makes it almost an untenable position. Yeah, maybe the last thing to go is going to be um, our economic common denominator yeah. and maybe that's what holds the country together yeah. is just our thoughts of like hey i'm making money you're making money <laughs> okay we're okay or something like that like you know but when when that when that gets frustrated enough i know? mean even you know one third of millennials that's my generation yeah i say that socialism is a good idea yeah that's again like putting aside the ethics of which system's better capitalism versus socialism Fine. But how do you have a country <laughs> where one third of the people in it say, I don't even like the economic system? Mm. I think it should be totally uprooted and changed into something different. Yeah. That's pretty radical. Yeah. And that, that's maybe my point is that you're going to get to a place where even things like money, right. economy is not going to bind people together. Right. Meaning at one point, you know, just 20 years ago, I mean, most people were like, yeah, we, we got a good system. Right. You know, but just 20 years up at, you know, here we are, you know, tons of people are like, no way. Yeah. You know, the system's not good at all. Right. And uh, yeah. So let me read this article and kind of uh, get some takes. So it says, seriously, Christian folks have got to lighten up about drag queen hour. Uh, we have an epidemic of predatory pastors, but yay, let's worry about drag queens reading books to children at the local library. So that's how she starts. So right off the bat, um, and I was thinking about this today, ironically, um, where I was listening to a clip where some someone was arguing for, I guess you would call it like traditional marriage. He's saying, hey, traditional marriage is a good idea. One man, one woman. 
And the more liberal, progressive person in the conversation said, well, yeah, but back in the day where traditional marriage was the cultural norm, a lot of men just cheated on their wives. They had like mistresses and things like that. Mm -hmm. And his point was, well, yeah, if you adopt a system, there will be people who are going to hypocritically go against it, meaning that they're going to put on a false face like they're adhering to it, but in the dark, they're going to be doing something totally different. That doesn't make the system bad. That just makes the hypocrisy of human beings bad. Yeah. So when they're bringing this up, it's like, are there pastors who are living double lives mm -hmm. and predatory and using their position and influence to take advantage of their members, including sexually take advantage of them? Absolutely. But we're not talking about a system that promotes it. We're talking about a system that is at its face against it. But there are hypocritical individuals within it. Mm -hmm. What you're talking about is setting up a system where it's on the surface, right? Where you're like, well, we're just going to set up a system where drag is normalized. That's a different thing. We're not talking about what are those drag queens doing behind the scenes. Yeah. We're talking about what is the system that's on the face. Do we yeah. agree with that? And, yeah. And, and, and to me, it's a, it's, there's a fallacy. I forget what it's called. One of the logical fallacies that it's like an appeal to something or I don't, I don't know, but she seems like she's making an appeal to something that really um, is in a sense, a straw man, I guess, mm -hmm. fallacy. Cause she, what she's kind of building up is that, Hey, there's pastors that, you know, are predatory, you know, hence she's probably referring to the Catholic church and all the predatory priests and stuff like that. Um, but that, that's kind of a, uh, in a sense, a, uh, you know, she tears it down but she doesn't really realize that, well, drag queens can do that too. Right. It's not like, it's not like drag queens have some moral superiority. Right. You know, and that they don't fall into various predatorial sexual behaviors. Right. Um, but she starts it off like that. Like, hey, the church has, you know, some pastors that are, you know, hey, they're, they're predators. But yeah, let's worry about drag queens. Like, it's no big deal. Right. You know, like, and um, yeah, it just, it, 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 logically, it doesn't seem like that's a, a, a good statement. It says, drag is a performance and entertainment and part society, social commentary about gender. Okay. True. I agree with that. <laughs> yeah. And it says, sure, we could have a high-level theoretical conversation about performativity, perform, perform of it, uh, just it's performance. Performative. Yeah, singling, uh, homo... Uh, mativity and gender fluidity and I have my own critiques of drag but that's not the point here hmm. the point is uh, a lot of Christians are freaked out because they think drag queens are grooming children simply by being drag queens in a public space with children present um, so she's and then says drag queen story hour started in San Francisco in 2015 when Michelle T. took her baby to library story hours but found them fairly heteronormative, focused and on and assuming heterosexual families. So she decided to create something more inclusive, especially for LGBTQ families. Hmm. So <laughs> this is where it gets a little broader. And, and this, is a, this is another thing that I want to bring up is when she's talking about Christians being worried about grooming happening within these shows. To, to be sure, 
there is a small segment of Christians who believe that all drag queens doing this are sexually grooming kids. I disagree with that. I don't think that's true. However, whenever you look at a system, you have to look at it and say, is it open to exploitation by someone who would be predatory? Right. So in other words, if you have a system in which a man is able to go and communicate directly with kids in a sexualized costume, is that system open to exploitation? And the answer is yes, it's open to exploitation at a much higher level than a pastor, right? Where he's talking about he's in a position where he's teaching children and people of all ages about the word of God. Yeah, and it's not really an equal, equal thing. It's not really a good comparison. And this is why is because, you know, you're talking about when you're talking about predatorial pastors, mm -hmm. <clears throat> there's a lot of priests and there's a lot of pastors uh, in the world, right? That is a, that's a large number. Right. And, and we're talking over periods of time, right? You know, she's referring to, um, you know, and now she's, she's trying to equate that with drag queens, right? How many drag queens are there worldwide? Right. How many drag queens have been monitored? Right. Or, you know, I mean, uh, uh, what kind of accountability has there been with drag queens lives? Right. You know, so it's like very, it's very, like I said, it's a logical fallacy to be able to do these things, to right. just kind of, you you put up that thing and you tear it down, right. but it's not really an equivalent. Right. You know? Even, uh, you know, I could say the amount of teachers in the public system who have groomed and sexually exploited students is far higher than anything that happened in the Catholic Church, but you don't really hear much about that. Yeah. Or I could say, hey, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of men uh, fathers right. that have sexually exploited their children. So therefore, fatherhood is bad. Fatherhood's bad. Right. You know, I could see, I could say, hey, there's a lot of women that have physically abused their children. Right. So you know, being a mom's obviously bad. Right. You know, um, I just don't. This doesn't seem like a very strong argument at all. Now, another thing, another concern that people might have is if all I knew about someone is that they had a fetish, right? They had some sort of a sexualized fetish. Would I trust my child around that person, even if it was a non-pedophilic fetish? So let's say I was vetting babysitters and I found out that my babysitter had a foot fetish. They had a preference for people's feet and they masturbated to pictures of people's feet. Would I feel comfortable with that person watching my kid? Now, I think the vast majority of parents would say, no, I don't. Even though the fetish has nothing to do with children, the fact that someone has a fetish makes me think about their sexuality and their sexual preference. It already deviates so much from the norm, it makes me naturally question, would it deviate in other areas as well? I don't know. So when you're talking about someone who has a fetish for a, a man who has a fetish for dressing up as a woman and putting on a burlesque show, would that preclude me from putting them in front of my child? Even though that fetish has nothing to do with children, is it right or acceptable for a parent to have a question mark about someone like that who already has a deviant sexual desire? Yeah, and I think the argument of what parents would say is like, hey, the whole point of us bringing them to this show is to get them out of the norm. Right. Like we want them to be exposed to the non-normative. Right. And this is why, you know, the LGBTQ, you know, plus, you know, Q, all that, you know, families... That's why they're they're brought into the article, right? And Michelle, this lady, obviously was thinking like, "Hey, how can I want my kid to be exposed 
Right. So lesbians, gay people, trans people, you know, this community. Mm-hmm. And so they don't see it as a fetish per se. They see it as a new normative. Right. You know? Right. And so if I can get my child exposed to that, and, and so I, I think I see where they're going with that, mm-hmm. you know, that idea. Um, and it says, in drag, Queen Story Hour was born. The concept soon spread to libraries all over the country where it was well-received by children and families who participated. Of course, not everyone was happy about drag queens reading to children. A petition of the American Library Association to stop drag queen story hours gathered 100,000 signatures, but the ALA responded by reaffirming its <clears throat> commitment to freedom of speech and ideas. Okay. So... Um, Today, attacking drag queens reading to children serves as a convenient strategy to let the religio-political right avoid looking at their own house. The right is using fears about gender and sexuality to enlist few followers uh, and to distract from their own current scandals, including clergy abuse and insurrection. It's much easier to play in old stereotypes about predatory gay men than to address the beams in their own eye. Mm. So she talks about that. So again, there, there's a difference between addressing something that is, you were, use the word systemic, versus something that is aberrational, right? So, so something that's systemic means it's a behavior that is necessitated from the system that you've erected. So for instance, if I institute slavery as a system and slavery results from it, that's not a bug, that's a feature. That's something that comes from the system. But if I set up a system of sexual purity and morality and people utilize that in an aberrational format to abuse people within their congregation, that's not a problem with the system. That's a problem with abuses within the system. So she, it is apples to oranges because what Christians are attacking with Drag Queen Story Hour is they're not attacking the hypocrisy of possibly one or two uh, or a percentage, I'm not sure what the percentage might be, of predatory uh, people who are drag queens who are giving these stories to kids. That's not really what we're attacking. I think that there's a higher potential for, like I said, exploitation of that system than other systems that are there. But I'm actually more just criticizing the system itself, right? Even if no aberrational abuses happen within the system, the system itself is designed to mm. promote, as you said, a kink or a fetish as normal, right? Mm -hmm. That's the problem, that you're presenting a, what has been traditionally understood. By the way, even in uh, ancient cultures that widely practiced uh, transvestitism, they saw it as a sexual fetish. They saw it as like a sexual practice. So, you know, one of the main passages we go to in the Bible about men dressing as women would be 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul forbids men dressing as women and women dressing as men within the church of Corinth. But we know historically one of the reasons why he's so opposed to it and he's so strict with how they're supposed to dress is because, again, the Corinthians saw it as a fetish. They saw that as when a man dresses as a woman in that society, it wasn't just, hey, I'm feeling like wearing a dress as opposed to pants today. It was a sign of sexual activity. It was a sign of I am dressed as a prostitute within the temple of Aphrodite's system, and I am open for business, if you want to put it that way. Mm. That was the idea. So even, even though 
transvestitism is very widespread. They are correct. When modern day people say that's been throughout human history, they're correct. But it has always been seen as a sexual practice. And are you okay with that? Right? You can't desexualize it. And again, when you look at drag shows, you could say many things about them. But the one thing you can't say is that it's non-sexual. It's the same as watching the ballet or watching, you know, like a, 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 a gymnastics performance. It's not the same thing. It's clearly a sexual performance. Mm. And so this lady's obviously, when she's writing, she's wanting, you know, people to, um, it sounds like she's wanting people to kind of uh, look at their, look in their own house, so to speak. You know, that right. passage says, judgment begins in the house of God. Kind of look into your own world before you go outside. Um, so let's continue with it. It says, certainly sexuality is a component of drag. So she admits that. Many drag performers are gay men, not all. Drag does suggest that queer sexuality is not deviant. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's, uh, that's not grooming. That's what she says. That's not grooming. And in fact, hearing the message early on may mean the children in the audience who grow up to be queer are better able to accept themselves and less likely to kill themselves. Although there does seem to be a sense among many of the right that it is better dead than queer. That's a sad statement. Some on the right even want an America where we execute queers. So her um, uh, that's a very extreme, I would imagine, view. Um, this is a, you know, I, it is a logical fallacy. I can't remember what it's called. But it's essentially taking the most extreme members of a position yeah. and portraying all members as being a party to it. Right. So, like, for instance, there are people on the extreme left that would be okay with sexual grooming at a young age. Right there, we and you did a podcast on this about a year ago. Yeah, where someone was promoting the idea of what he called minor attracted persons, pedoph- pedophiles. But he he said that we should destigmatize pedophilia and call them minor attracted persons. So there are people on the far left that are okay and promote sexual grooming of children. And again, that is something that has been practiced throughout human history, unfortunately. Now that doesn't mean I could say that everybody on the left believes that way. It just means that there are extreme members of their position that think that way. In the same way, are there extreme members on the right, the Christian conservative right, that would be okay promoting the death penalty for homosexuals? Uh, Undoubtedly, right? Undoubtedly. What's the percentage within the movement? Very, very low, like Mm -hmm. frighteningly low. You're talking about going to the absolute excesses of the movement. And so it is is a, a bait and switch tactic to try to promote your ideas as being pure and holy and good and your opponents as being demonic and genocidal. Yeah. And I find it too interesting where she says sexuality is a component of drag. Right. Like, okay. Many drag performers are gay men. Okay. But not all. And drag does, she says, drag does suggest that queer sexuality is not deviant. And, and then she said, that's not grooming. Right. So then she makes a statement on it. Right. Like, but thing is, is the, the, the idea is what is grooming, right? Like, okay, so what, what are, what do we groom? Uh, when we use the word groom, we're kind of using it very selective. It seems right. like, like, for instance, like, uh, I'm in a cisgendered, you know, monogamous marriage. Am I grooming my child to be a cisgendered monogamous person? 
Right. Someone would say, well, yeah, you are. <clears throat> You're grooming them for that. Well, is that wrong? Right. Well, yeah, that's wrong. You need to, you need to put gay sex on for them so that they could see gay people too. Right. Or you have to put polygamous sex so that they could see polygamous sex in action. Right. You know, you have to expose them though to transgender lifestyle as well. So you need to watch so many movies on transgenderism when the child's five. <laughs> right. You know, do you see how ridiculous this yeah. is sounding? And this is this is a is called the equivocation fallacy. It's where you take a word in one sense and you insist on its definition in all senses. Right. So it'd be it'd be kind of like if you and I were talking about let's say climate, and there are many different ways that people utilize the word. But what if I say, well, you're a climate change denier, right? And what I'm insisting upon is I'm insisting on a very particular definition of climate. I'm insisting that what we mean by climate is the weather as it's increasing in temperature over time. And so if you say, I disagree with that, I'm saying, well, you're a climate change denier. Now, what you could mean, though, is, well, I believe that the climate is always in flux. It is always getting hotter and colder, and there are various factors that contribute to it. By me insisting that you're a climate denier, I'm insisting on one definition, and I'm saying you're in denial of that. That's a, that's a fallacy. So in the same way, she's taking one narrow definition of grooming, that is sexual grooming, meaning an adult taking a child and grooming them for a sexual relationship with that specific adult, right? She's taking that one specific definition and saying that's what everybody means. But you've brought up the idea that grooming could be just preparing someone for a lifestyle. So for instance, uh, if someone was being groomed to be, let's say, a CEO of a business, this happens all the time, right? And people use those phraseologies and everyone knows yeah. what they mean. Yeah, totally. Right? I'm being groomed to replace this particular person. Yeah, or at the to play head of the baseball company. or I'm groomed to be this or, you know, that. That's that's used all the time. That's right. So it just means to prepare someone for a particular lifestyle. So when people are saying, well, these drag queens are grooming them, she's you you could tell she's already agreeing, she's already agreed to the fact that they are. She's just used the equivocation fallacy to not utilize the word. Right. Because she said it is to teach kids that this queer lifestyle is not deviant. That's grooming. That's the definition of grooming. You're preparing them to accept a particular view of the world. Right. That's that's what grooming means. But if you want to insist that everyone who uses the term grooming means it in this very narrow sense that the drag queens are necessarily preparing young children to have sex with them, that is something that, again, I'm, I'm sure that there are various people on the right that do think that way, but I don't think that the majority of people on the right think that way. Right. I think the majority of people are contesting not the, the possibility of abuse, which might be higher than most other circumstances considering what's going on, but they're mainly against the grooming into the ideology that this lifestyle is normal and not deviant. Right. And she makes that clear herself. So there's right. a, there's a little bit of a contradiction there, right? you know, or a, an equivocation. Fallacy. Right. So she says, now that's not to say drag isn't a threat. Drag is an incredible threat to gender norms that subordinate women and vilify LGBTQ, D, LGBTQ <laughs> people. <laughs> and that's what the right is really afraid of, that drag might cause people to rethink gender and sexuality, that they might further lose their grip on power over straight women and gender and sexual minorities. 
So she, in a sense, admits the grooming yeah. issue. It is grooming. In, in that paragraph. But it's good. Yeah. You're grooming him to something good, so it's good. That's right. Which the other side of it is, well, then obviously her argument's no different from the flip side right. argument. Right. They're both making the same argument of right. like grooming's bad, right. but it's just that their ideologies of the type of grooming are, are <laughs> the ideologies are different. Right. And you know, this is one of the things that uh, you and I talk about a lot on this podcast where a lot of Christians believe that the sexual preferences listed in the Bible are normal. And what we've said over and over again is no, they are not. The sexual preferences listed in the Bible, the sexual commands, if you want to put it that way, the ethics, are not normal. No culture has adhered to them ever until the Judeo-Christian culture took over. The idea that one man should be sexually committed to one woman in a partnership, monogamously loving one another and committing to one another for life, is completely aberrational on the world scene. There was always an institution of marriage but the idea is that I had to be sexually faithful to one woman. That's the unique quality that's within Judeo-Christian values. So a lot of Christians are uncomfortable using the language of, well, yeah, the reason why I'm against what you're doing is you're grooming my child into an ideology that I'm against. I want to groom my child into this particular ideology. They're afraid to use that language because they want to see the other side as being completely aberrational. What we're saying is, no, actually what you're doing is pretty normal in the world scene. The idea of having men dress as women in a sexual manner in front of kids, that was normal. That doesn't mean it's good. It just means that it's been normal historically yeah, throughout I, human history. I, I think that's something where maybe she's a little short-sighted in the sense that she's not understanding that there was a time where the world wasn't, in a sense, in this idea <laughs> of one man, one woman for life. Right that there's thousands and thousands and thousands of years where human beings were not even clued into this idea. Right. right. And, and, and that, you know, people were in a sense groomed yeah. by their culture yeah. to have sex and to be sexualized in many different ways. Right. Um, and, and, so it's very interesting, and there's a lot we've talked about in other podcasts about this kind of idea that people don't understand. They call it like a post-Christian culture where they don't realize they're actually regressing back into a culture that was uh, pre-Christianity. Right. right, we're not progressing, we're just regressing. <laughs> yeah, we're just going back to a pre-Christian culture yeah. where kids were already exposed to many things. Right. So this is not nothing new. Right, and it was normal. It was normal. Right. And, and so... Um, you know, and it's not like the world was the greatest place right. back then. <laughs> not for women, especially <laughs> yeah. not for women. Yeah. Um, and, and not for children. Right. And right. not for children. And so another interesting thing, you know, we've talked about this before. It was the uh, bill that was, took a lot of fire from Florida where they were saying that sexually uh, teachers were not allowed to give gender ideology to children underneath the age of eight. Essentially, it was, uh, I think, second or third grade that they could finally start talking about those things. And uh, a lot of conservatives who were defending it, they were like, well, we're, we're not saying that it's any sexual talk. We're saying it's, it's all sexual talk, right? We're not going to talk about anything sexual to kids under the age of eight. And the point that I made is that's not true. I would have zero problems with a school reading a book in which a prince and princess fall in love get married and have kids, 
I would be absolutely opposed to a book in which a prince marries a prince and they engage in a sexual lifestyle or a prince marries six princesses and a prince and have a polyamorous kind of fling inside of the castle. I would be very opposed to that book bringing it up again as a normalcy. Mm -hmm. That would be something I would oppose. So it's not just I am against any sexual talk before this particular age. It's no, no, no. I'm against a very I'm, I'm against certain sexual communications before a certain age, for sure, by and large. But I'm not against all sexual talk before a certain age, just a certain type. Right. And in the same way, am I opposed to anybody reading stories to kids? No, but I am opposed to utilizing that platform to normalize a particular sexual behavior. That's what I'm opposed to. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, that's why, again, it's the age that bothers me, not necessarily the concept of drag in and of itself. Right. Should I expect people who don't know God to not dress in drag when that is kind of the norm throughout human history. Not really. I don't expect that. I don't expect the government to come down and say, no more. You're not allowed to do this. If a man dresses, we're going to go back to Leviticus. Mm -hmm. You know, if a man dresses like a woman, we're going to, we're to stone them. If a woman dresses like a man, that's it. I, I, I'm not, I'm not for that, but I do have a problem with, again, the normalization of the behavior to children mm -hmm. for that reason. And what's interesting is, you know, her argument's the same. Yeah. I mean, she has, she, she, uh, they would argue that they don't want to see something, uh, they want to see something normative right. uh, to them. Right. And, and that's where the, the differences lie yeah. in these worldviews and in these ideologies. And this is where it becomes very difficult. Right. You know, and, um, where people's anger can just boil. On both sides. And again, this gets back to the point I made previously of, can you sustain a national identity when there's this much difference? Yeah. When one side says children are sexual, like let's say they go the whole hog and believe yeah. Freud altogether. Right. Children are sexual from the day that they're born. And therefore it's good to start showing children methodologies of sex throughout their childhood so that they could develop themselves sexually. And if you don't do that, by the way, Freud uh, believed this way, but Kinsey and Alfred Kinsey took this up as well. And they believe that actually, if you're not exposing your kid to sexual stuff, you're repressing their sexuality and you've caused them great harm. So on one side of the token, you have people who believe that not exposing kids to this is damaging to them and repressing to their identity. She even mentions that they might commit suicide if they are someone who's predisposed to homosexuality but doesn't feel free to express that. That's, again, Freud's idea, that if you repress a sexual identity, it becomes negative and it becomes an invert on your psyche and it could lead to depressive and suicidal thoughts. But on the other side, you have a group of people that say, no, 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 it's, it's the opposite. You're not born sexual. Your sex drive, like many other things in your biology, is present from birth, but it develops over time. Right? It becomes more and more applicable as you grow older and then you go through puberty and that's when the sex drive really hits. But it doesn't mean that there's no sex drive prior to that. Right, I think that's also a fallacy. Mm -hmm. But it develops over time and therefore there's a way that we're supposed to develop it. And I believe that there is a way that you ought to develop it and express it. Those are two very different ideologies. Incredibly different. Is it possible to maintain a cultural identity when you have people that believe that vehemently, something that's so antithetical to one another, 
that's a tough thing. Yeah, and I think in the United States, you know, what you've seen is people move to places that usually communities that they can really kind of function in. I remember talking to a lesbian lady who said, hey, I had to move to out of this neighborhood in the, in our town and move to another part of the town because they were more, you know, you know, she seemed more comfortable there. Right. And I think a lot of people do that, yeah. you know, as they try to find a group, a, a society, a, a place where they can function. Right. You know, um, and do what they want to do. And, um, and, and that's what we see in uh, like big cities like San Francisco. That's right. You know? and, and that's why, again, the founders did set up a federalist system in which you have the balance between state and federal powers. So they created an incredibly weak federal government, but very powerful state governments for this very reason. You don't see this type of dispersion of power in many other countries, and it's because they understood that. We're a melting pot. We have very different cultures and identities coming in. So the only way we're going to be able to get along is if the states are able to be sorted by ideology. So you move to San Francisco, you know you're getting a particular culture. You move to Texas, you know you're getting a different culture. You move to New York, you're getting a different culture. And that's how people should move. The reason why I'm saying that uh, is it a tenable thing to continue long term is we're now looking at the federal government to top down enforce our ideologies on one another. So is it tenable for that country to subsist? And I, I don't think it is, right? I don't think that's possible when you have both parties reaching for the federal gun and trying to aim it at the other person, yeah. right? This is not going to work. And, and again, in her ideology, if that's what you really were teaching, that you said, okay, we have these massively different beliefs about what sexuality is, how it ought to develop, things like that. So you know what? You guys have your communities. You have your beliefs. You stay over there. We have our communities. We have our beliefs. We're going to stay over here. And neither the twain should meet, right? But that's not what she's saying. She's saying it's okay to, I guess you could call it proselytize, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's okay for you to go into other communities and promote your ideology in a public forum to children specifically. So it'd be very similar if I, as a pastor did a story hour? What if there was a pastor's story hour? Everyone would know what I'm doing, right? So if, if I went to a local bookstore and said, hey, I'm a local pastor, and I'm going to read you guys Hansel and Gretel or Cinderella or something like that, everyone would know the reason why you're in there is because you want to proselytize. You want to teach kids about yourself, make them more comfortable with Christianity, and potentially convert families into your belief system. And I would say, absolutely, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm called to evangelize. I'm called to share my faith. They're doing the same thing, right? It's, yeah. a, it's an evangelism and of their know, ideas. It reminds me so much of growing up. You know, growing up secular progressive and hearing that side, of course, all my grow up years. And then, you know, coming into the church later on in my years, uh, our late teenage years, you know, it, it's funny. It's like I, I heard the same arguments almost from different perspectives, mm. You know, the same almost exact things verbatim, just yeah. di different ideologies, you know. Um, and But notice her theology. This is what I find very interesting, and then we can end. Yeah. It says, children themselves are exploring gender. Think how many little boys want to wear a princess costume before social constraints shame them from doing so. Lots of little girls want to be pirates and play baseball. Drag queens might help them think that's okay. First of all, I thought that was, I was like, this is really interesting. Yeah. Like, it seems like it's a big jump 
exploring gender. Right. Like, um, like how, like how, what does she mean? Like how far of exploring gender is that? Well, kid, you know, know, and, and this is the mistake that a lot of people make on both sides. What kind of being is a child? Yeah. Right, what kind of being is a child? And so th- this is something that's been discussed for many, many years, and it really came to a head with three figures that appeared around the same time. Mm-hmm. You have Thomas Hobbes, John Locke, and Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and they had a debate with one another. Even though they lived in different time periods in different countries, they had kind of a long-term, like century-long debate. Hobbes believed when you're born, you're evil. You're born wicked, sinful, and horrible, and you need a incredibly stringent state power. That's why he called his book Leviathan. Mm-hmm. You need this strangulating state that's going to be so powerful and imposing, it's going to force you to act right even though you don't want to because you're evil at your core. Mm-hmm. Locke said, you're born like a blank slate. You know, you're mm-hmm. not born evil, you're not born good, you're a complete blank slate, and society has to enculturate you in its ideal- ideology. Rousseau said, you're born innocent and then society corrupts you. When I'm looking at a child and there, let's say, a child is wanting to put on a dress, what is that activity? Hobbes would say that's a result of your child's evil. It's because your child's wicked and wants to go against what he ought to be doing within society, and that is becoming a man and filling his role as a man within that culture. Locke would see it as ignorance. The child just doesn't know what they're doing. They're a complete blank slate. They're just trying out whatever they want. Right. And they're going to figure it out later. Yeah, whatever's available. Whatever's available. And then yeah. you as a parent have to guide them into what you think is right. Rousseau would look at it and say, well, that's just what they innately want to do. Mm-hmm. And whatever you innately want to do is pure, righteous, and good. So therefore, as a parent, my role isn't to stop them from doing that, but to encourage that behavior because that's how they ought to be. Right? It sounds like this woman, again, agrees more with Rousseau. Right? <laughs> it's, yeah, that's their true self. I should encourage them to do that. Well, what's the Christian perspective? It's somewhere in between Hobbes and Locke. It's not exactly Hobbes. It's not exactly Locke because we're not a blank slate, but we're also not pure evil, right? You don't come out like a a spawn of Satan, right? Mm -hmm. Kids want to do good things as well as bad things. Mm -hmm. What we believe is that we're born with both, again, the nature of God as well as the nature of Adam. Mm -hmm. We're born pure but fallen. And therefore, there are things that we naturally want to do because we're just purely curious. We're innocent. We don't know better. And we're just purely curious. But there are also things that we want to do as children that are bad and wrong, and we want to do them because they're wrong. So right now, my daughter is wanting to do things that are wrong. She knows they're wrong. So uh, let me give you one example. She knows that she's not supposed to hurt her brother. We've told her that many times. When she gets frustrated and she's going to throw something, you better believe it's coming at his head (laughs) because she knows she's not supposed to do it to us, and she can't get away with that. But she can kind of throw it in his direction and pretend like (laughs) it was an accident, but she knows what she's doing. It's clearly an intentional defiance huh. against us. and But at the same time, sometimes she wants to hold his hand and be affectionate to him. So you see the, the dynamic there. She sometimes wants to do good. She sometimes wants to do evil. And sometimes she's just doing things because she's curious. Why does she try on my shoes? Because they're big and funny. And she wants to see how they fit. That's yeah. really, literally as far as it goes. So again, I think that a conservative parent going too far, looking at your child wanting to try on a dress and saying, oh my gosh, like it's, it's evil. Satan's coming to the house. That's stupid. 
But the liberal looking at it and saying, oh, that's their true self. They want to become a girl. They're also stupid. I think that the majority of times when a child tries on something from the opposite gender is because they're innocent and they don't know what they're doing, right? Now, not always the case. Sometimes they're, again, indoctrinated into a behavior, and we have to look at that. But the vast majority of time, it's just they're innocent. But we also believe that there is a way that they ought to act, that gender is something that you live into. It's not just something that you're born into. It's something that you have to choose and live into. It's not a performance. It's an acting out of your biological existence. I'm born a male, but then I have to live into that identity. Just like I'm born a child of God, but if I don't live into that identity, I'll be eternally separated from God. That's what God has designed us to be able to do. I have a born identity as a man but I have to learn how to live into that role. That's the appropriate way for me to express that gender. Yeah, I find I find this interesting too, and those are good points, is when it says like, um, you know, many little boys want to wear a prince's costume before social res- constraints shame them from doing so. What's interesting is the idea of social constraints. Right. Like, like are we looking at a world without social constraints? Yeah. Like, what does a world look like without social constraints? Right. Can you show me one? Right. Like, where in history or even today in the world is a place where there's no social constraints? Mm. Like, I'm trying to think of one. Lord of the Flies. Lord of the Flies. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. Yeah. I mean, where does that work? Right. I mean, where does that, how does that function? Right. You know, criticizing social constraints Um might not be the best argument. Right. Um, because what you might be asking for is something seriously, seriously bad. Right. You know, um, not understanding just how crazy, wicked we can get. Right. Um, you know, and to think, you know, for her, I, I think for her to say um, that first uh, little sentence where little boys want to wear a princess costume, well, where are they getting the idea of princess? Right. Where does that come from? Right. You know? Well, they've been watching some kind of cisgender, you know, <laughs> program. Right. You know, of, you know, Disneyland or something. Right. They saw a princess. They went to Disneyland. Right. You know? And, um, you know, so do we criticize that? Right. You know, the foundational culture? Right. You know? And we say, you know what? The foundational culture is wrong. Right. You know, the normative culture is wrong. Right. And the fringe culture's right. Right. So we need to make the normative, the non-normative, the fringe, the normative. (laughs) Exactly. And we have to flip-flop this. We're still doing social constraints. Right. Um, I I still, I just don't, I see just a lot of contradiction. Right. You know? So in her view, and again, I don't want to speak for her, but it sounds like this is what she's saying, that she has that Rousseau idea that children are born innocent and good, and therefore whatever they innately want to do is what's good for them. And so it's not that there is, as you mentioned, that is still a social constraint. That is still saying whatever you want to do is good for you, so I'm going to support and encourage it. But even that has limitations. What if your kid wants to swallow strychnine? Are you going to say, well, okay, well, this is what you want to do. Is that a social constraint? Is that a social constraint for me to say no? Um, Now, that's an extreme example, but let's take a a smaller one. What if my uh, son wants to hit girls? Should I shame him for that? Should I tell him no? Should I discipline him for doing that? 
Or should I say, well, he kind of naturally just wants to do that. And, you know, men and women are kind of equivalent. So him roughhousing with a girl or yeah, there's no shame in a man beating up a woman. Right. There's nothing wrong with that. Or should I say, no, that's wrong. And I should discipline him harsher than if he was just roughhousing with another boy. Right. Or a boy who's much younger than him versus a boy who's his age. Right. That, that is a social constraint that I'm putting upon him. But that's because I think it's good. And in the same way, I, I do believe that she's correct. If I see, you know, like, uh, you know, the, the thing about child masturbation comes up a lot because Freud's idea is, well, you always see kids touching themselves. Right. Yeah. But is their touching themselves sexual or is it curiosity? And again, it doesn't mean that it doesn't have an innate good feeling to it, but it means do they see it as a sexual act like you would? And the answer is no, they don't. So if I see my daughter touching herself or my son, you know, boys are more famous for this because, you know, they got a little fire hose down there and they think it's hilarious, right? Because <laughs> why wouldn't you right. think it's hilarious? Right. You know, so if I look at my son, I'm like, no, bad. And I'm treating him as though he's like committed a cardinal sin for messing with his genitalia. Then I have done something negative to him. Mm-hmm. I have shamed him unnecessarily for an act done in innocence. So if my son or my, if my daughter starts wanting to wear my shoes or my son wants to start wearing my wife's shoes and I come to him like, no, you know, like yeah. you're a boy, don't do that. I've messed up. But I should, if he tells me one day, hey, dad, I want to, for Halloween, I want to dress up as Cinderella. If I tell him one day, well, you know, Cinderella is a girl and you're a boy. So I understand, like, I'm not going to shame you for that or make you feel terrible, but there is, you are a male and this is a part of, you, you live into that. So let's pick a different person who's a boy, right? Because that's what you are. You are a boy. That would be a correct way for me to parent them. Now, she would disagree with me. She would say, no, you're indoctrinating your child. You're putting social constraints upon him. And I would say, yeah, I am, because I think that there is a way that a human ought to act and behave. And you do, too. right? You do, right, too. Right. You're just unwilling to admit that. Yeah. Again, both arguments are are, are predicated on your ideology. Right. On uh, the way people think, right. you know, whether it's Freud or whether it's um, Locke or Rousseau right. or these other guys, right. you know, um, people. So um, it, now this is where it's interesting. You may be wondering what the Bible has to say about all this. Well, the incarnation is a kind of drag, isn't it? <laughs> At the center of our faith it's is a funny. story of God taking on, performing humanity and thereby redeeming humanity. Incarnation isn't God in a bod. Uh, <laughs> That's kind of a hilarious point. Incarnation, incarnation is God's stamp of approval on our humanity, a statement of God's radical inclusiveness of our humanity. Right. Very interesting. So this is kind of an interesting point. I've never heard it before, but as I'm thinking about it, when you look at pagan deities, you could actually accuse them of doing a, a type of drag because she's right. So if you look at Zeus, for instance, Zeus would sometimes take on the form of a man, but he's not a man. He's doing it performatively in order to usually have sex with women because that's what he would do. Now, in the Old Testament, God would do that, but it was so he could be understood by man, right? He couldn't show up in his form because God is spirit and man can't perceive the spiritual. So he had to take on some sort of form, and obviously he's going to take on a form that we can understand and perceive, namely a form of a man. So that makes sense, but that's not God doing drag. That's God condescending to man and helping us understand and comprehend him. So what's the incarnation? Well, the incarnation is actually not drag. The incarnation is God literally becoming a man, right? He's not performing humanity. He's actually becoming humanity 
in all of its strengths and all of its weaknesses, right? God had to take on all the, all the perspectives of flesh and everything that comes with it, including death. So it's an interesting argument, but it does miss the mark, yeah. right? Yeah, <laughs> well, well, when she says incarnation isn't God in a bod, right. you know, that's where I was like, well, no, it is. Yeah, it is. The incarnation is God in a body, and, yeah. and the ascension would be uh, uh, irrelevant right. if God didn't take a body into heaven and right. lives with that body forevermore. Right. You know, that this is the great, amazing mystery, right? Uh, God in human flesh. Right. This is what Paul spoke in the book of Timothy. Right. You know, the great mystery of godliness. Right. Right? Right. Uh, the first line of that great mystery of godliness is is that he became human. Right. You know, that's the point. Right. You know, that's the amazing thing. Like God, God's not doing a performance. Right. He doesn't go back into heaven and be like, wow, that was a great performance. We really did it, you know? <laughs> this would be more like the Gnostic idea. Yeah. Right? That the Gnostic Christians believed in, in a performative fleshly experience where mm-hmm. uh, a form of God takes on a body and then is released from that body upon his death because he's not actually a man. He is God acting out manhood and then going back into his form of God. As you brought it up, the Christian doctrine is that God becomes fully man, dies as a man, raises as a man, and ascends as a man. So he retains and intercedes as a man and intercedes as a man between God and man. So he's not performing manhood. He is a man. He remains his humanity. He retains his humanity even in the ascension. Um, and, and again, so like a drag queen, they to put on a wig and, a, and an outfit and they be, they take on the appearance of a woman, but then they go back to being a man. Yeah. So that is the opposite of what God did in the incarnation. It's completely different, right? Yeah. And, and you know, there's a lot to get into there theologically and maybe how her theology has affected her, um, just her, her, the way she writes and the way she thinks. Mm. Um, because if you think God's, you know, if you, if you don't, if you think, you know, God, if you take the scriptures at face value and you go, yeah, God became a man right. and he ascended as a man. Right. And he now intercedes. It says he lives to intercede for us before the father. Right. Uh, that God as the son is the human being, mm. is the all God, all human right. Jesus. Then humanity, there is a special place for humanity and there's a special place for male and female. Right. And that, that really throws a monkey wrench into your idea of the fluidity gender right. ideology. Right. And that God is not fluid. Right. You know, that Jesus isn't fluid right. in heaven. He is not male and female. Right. Um, in his incarnation. Right. And that there is a, he is specifically male. Right. And took the form of a man. Right. And, and, and this kind of, um, so it's like her theology is definitely, you know, has been affected either by her sociology right. <laughs> or, or, or vice versa. Well, it's like we talked about in the last podcast, she does sound like a Gnostic, right? Yeah. So in, in, in Gnosticism, in that kind of dualist mindset, the idea is that your soul is who you really are and your body is just a, it's an appendage, essentially. It's something that you can discard yeah. and when you die. And so she does seem to think that the incarnation is in that same 
framework that God is just taking on a body and then discarding it as a shell once he's done with it. And in the same way, if you think that way about your being, then you would say, well, then all gender is performative, right? You have a soul, which is the real you, yeah. and then you have a body that's not the real you, and your body cannot match your personality or your temperament, so you're free to change it or to change your performance of your gender role as you see fit. But from a Christian, we would say, well, no, 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 your, your body is an integral component to who you are, right? Your soul can't be extracted from your body in any real or lasting sense. We do in, Christ, in Christianity believe there, there will be a time frame where God will allow a separation between body and soul before the uh, resurrection, but that will be remedied at the end of time. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, we don't want to be naked, but we want to be further clothed. In other words, we don't want our souls to be disembodied. We want our souls to have a better body. That's, that's our desire as humanity. So your, your body is not something that you can discard like a shell. It is a part of who you are. And therefore, like I said, having a male body is a part and parcel of who I am in my spirit. When God raises this body from the dead, I will still be a man, right? I will be a resurrected man and my wife will be a resurrected woman. We're going to retain that body that we die in because that is an intricate part of who we are. And Freud, interestingly, he was a complete materialist. So in his books, what really was surprising to me, shocked me actually, is that they were already doing gender experiments back in his day on animals. I didn't know that. But when you read in his book, he's talking about different psychologists cutting, castrating animals and trying to hollow out channels that mimic the vaginal canal all the way back in the 1800s. Mm. Because his idea was, well, you're just, there is no such thing as a soul. You're just a body. So if you're just a body, then if I take a male body and turn it into a female body, have they become a female? And Freud's answer would be yes. So her idea is you have an identity that's metaphysical, it's spiritual, and that's who you really are. And sometimes your body doesn't match what your soul is, and so you're free to change it. Freud's idea is you have a body, but that's all you are, and so it doesn't really matter. If you can change the body, you change the person. Mm -hmm. From the Christian perspective, you have a soul and a body, but they're linked to one another. You can change the body all you want. It doesn't change your soul, and it doesn't change the intricate unity between soul and body, mm -hmm. right? You have to—it's not a performance— but you represent your soul through your body, right? This is what we do all the time. For instance, it's like when I tell my wife I love her, why am I doing that? I know I, I have faith. I believe I love her. Why do I have to say it? It's because my body has to act out. It has to represent my love verbally as well as through actions and performance, right? There is a way that I'm behaving that represents my mental or spiritual understanding of my love for her. And if I don't do that, people would say, well, you, then you don't love your wife, right? I'm like, well, I love her in my mind. Why do I have to tell her? Or why do I have to do anything to show her? You say, well, then you don't really love her. If it's not matching, if your body is not doing what your soul acknowledges, then it's not real. Mm. This is James' point. And a lot of times people miss this in James chapter 2. That's what he's saying. He's not saying that your body will always perfectly act out what your, what your faith is. But he's saying that if your faith never manifests itself inside of your body, then it's not real faith at all, right? It's not real. Your body is a part, it's a component of your faith life, hmm. right? So if I just say, well, I intellectually believe in Jesus, but then I don't do literally anything <laughs> to, 
to demonstrate or represent that faith, is it real faith? And James would say, no, it's not. The body and the soul are intricately unified. Mm, you have to do both. To link up with that. So we're kind of wrapping up. A lot of people um, struggle with being angry mm. with this kind of stuff that goes on. Um, me personally, I don't have any anger in me about it. Um, mm. In um, um, you know, uh, maybe it's because of my background and just growing up the way I did. Um, you know, it's hard for me to get angry at mm. um, people that are drag queens or um, um, if any, if there's any, if there's any inkling of anger, it would be maybe at um, you know, just uh, maybe the maybe parents, maybe maybe it would be maybe at parents or uh, maybe at the uh, place that's a, that opens up their doors to it. You yeah, know? No, no one in this conversation right. has asked the question of why isn't there a law in the books to prevent this yeah. in any state, even though this was the social norm. It's because there didn't need to be one. Right? Yeah. There didn't need to be a law in the books that prevented parents from doing something like this. They just never would. Yeah. So like you said, Bo, it's like, can we fix the politics? Yeah, but what's wrong with our society in which you would need a law like that? Yeah. To prevent that behavior. Yeah. How do you how do you think, you know, people, you know, need to behave in these in this manner so that they really represent Christ and they don't get so tweaked? Mm. You know, like the gentleman that um I was kind of talking to early on where I could tell he was just super angry, man. You know, and uh, the Bible says the uh, anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and I think that's a great passage because what it's saying is that your anger, neither good or bad, because Psalm 4 verse 4 says, be angry and do not sin. But Mm -hmm. what it's saying is that your anger is never going to produce the righteousness of God. Like if you're being moved solely by your anger and your frustration, you're not going to make things better. You're probably going to make things worse, right? You're not going to create social harmony. You're going to create more social disunity and disharmony. So again, it's not that it's bad to be angry. You ought, I think that someone ought to be angry at this, right? Mm-hmm. And there are many different sources that their anger can attach to. But if you're being moved and motivated only by your anger, it's not coupled with anything else, you're definitely not going to be bringing about anything good or positive, right? If you're simply a reactionary, you're not going to actually build a vision of righteousness and goodness. You're just going to tear down the ugliness that's in front of you, right? And you might be creating something worse. Mm. So... Um, being angry is good, but what do we do with the anger? Well, in Psalm 4, verse 4, it says, meditate on your bed and be silent. So there's an idea of who should I be angry at? And do I trust in the laws and the goodness of God to deal with these people as they need to be? So like you said, a good source of my anger would be the parents that are bringing their kids there. Could be at the drag queens. It could be at the behavior that they're exhibiting towards these children. It could be at the politicians who are supporting it. But am I going before God and giving the right to judge these people to him as opposed to seeking vengeance in my own hands? That would be the negative that can produce within people of, I'm going to get even with these people in order to show the fact that I disapprove their behavior. Well, no. If I'm able to give the final right of judgment to God, then, and this is important, I will be able to utilize the means at my disposal to change the culture in the direction I want it to change without putting and staking my sanity upon its success or failure. So in other words, if I get riled up and I'm like, I can't believe this is happening, our country's going to hell, and I start fighting it, if I fail, 
well, then I have failed to accomplish the only thing that would have given me peace. Right. But if I've entrusted justice to God, Mm -hmm. then I can fight this thing with all that I have. But if I fail, right, if it doesn't come to fruition, I still believe there's a God in heaven that will judge the unrighteous, right? He's going to do what he needs to do. And he's going to deliver judgment both to our nation, by the way, and to the individual. Once you understand and believe that, it's like, well, I don't want my nation to be judged. I want my nation to repent. So that's why I'm going to fight this thing. However, if my nation doesn't repent and it keeps going in the direction it's going and it becomes more and more godless, Mm -hmm. well, then God's going to deal with our nation. Mm -hmm. And he's going to deal with the individuals that are representing these ideals and pushing them away from godliness. And that that might be, you know, the answer in 1 Peter chapter 3, I think you're mentioning. Um, It might be Mm -hmm. uh, 2. 2. where, um, you know, Jesus was insulted, but did not insult in return, but committed himself to him who judges righteously when he was on the cross. He gave judgment to the Father. Maybe that's been some of the glue of why the nation has been able to go cohabitate for so long, is because there's a a big part of the the population that's able to commit ultimate judgment into another's hand. Right. And so you don't have to retaliate and seek vengeance and go after. Right. But, you know, as the society becomes more secular. Right. And as people aren't able to commit things unto God because Mm -hmm. they've thrown out God, then they, you know, won't be able to do that passage, of course, at all. Right. You know, they won't believe in that passage. But when you have enough Christians around that believe that passage and strongly hold to it and say, hey, I need to commit myself to him who judges righteously. Right. Jesus did not retaliate, right. but he committed himself to the Father who is able to judge. Right. And, and if we can't do that, then we put ourselves in positions where we have to judge. Exactly. And we have to inflict the, um, the um, revenge right. or whatever we feel like we need to do, the justice. Right. We need to do that. Right. And um, and that might be our greatest downfall. Absolutely. And then, we, you know, anyway, it's been an awesome podcast yeah, for yeah, sure. We've gotten to a lot of cool territory. Very relevant. And thanks so much for uh, listening. And we will try to do one next week. We'll do our best. <laughs> hey, we got access to the studio. That's now. right. Yeah. And we're ready to go. So thanks for listening. Take care. Check out runninglight.org to begin our two video series, Take Flight and Love or Lust. You can also send us questions on Twitter at Running Light or on our runninglight.org podcast page. Like us on Facebook at Running Light Ministries, Psalm 36.8. They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your pleasures.